0: Welcome to Defining Roles, a podcast about jobs you may have never heard of. I'm your host, Kate Barrett. Let's explore the possibilities of what's out there so that we can find a perfect role. This week on the podcast, I am talking with Dr. Patricia Corneal, who is a leading dementia care consultant and brain health specialist who has trained and mentored thousands of healthcare professionals and caregivers nationally and internationally. What's amazing about Dr. Corneal is that she's truly passionate about improving the lives of individuals living with or at risk of living with cognitive change whether that's dementia, autism, brain injury, or several other cognitive disabilities. In the episode, we get to hear about the model that Dr. Cornille uses in her practice and how it actually is quite different from much of what the industry is currently using to diagnose and treat patients. Dr. Cornille not only specializes in those that have cognitive disabilities, but she's also the brain health specialist that can help us prevent a lot of these things from developing. And we talk about ways to keep our brain healthy and stay sharp. So there's a little bit of everything in this episode. I personally have learned so much from Dr. Cornel. I'm very excited to share this episode with you. Let's get straight to it. Enjoy. Dr. Patricia, thank you for joining me on Defining Roles today. Well, I'm honored to be here, and thanks for having me. Is it okay if I call you Trish in this interview? Because that is what I'm, I'm used to. Dr. Patricia and I are neighbors, and so I knew you as Trish before I ever knew you as Dr. Patricia Corneal. Absolutely. That's who I am, Trish. Mm. Awesome. Well, what is your official job title? Well, I
1: am the clinical director and founder of Vita Cura, which is an organization that is dedicated to providing high quality services for individuals living with cognitive change.
0: Oh my goodness. How would you define your role within that? Well, that
1: that's a big scope right there, cognitive change. So yeah. our organization, we provide cutting-edge education with current evidence, but we make it effective and simple. So we train professionals. We work with organizations to help them deliver excellent care. We do advocacy through public speaking and events, and we support professionals to work with individuals as well.
0: Okay, so when you say cognitive change, what different areas are you specifically working with?
1: Well, we work with all kinds of um, individuals. Those who could be at risk, which could be dementia, is a huge growing need right now globally. We have a global crisis with over 6.5 million people here in the United States are living with Alzheimer's or some type of dementia. We work with people who may have other related neurocognitive disorders, such as Parkinson's disease or different types of dementia. There's several types of dementia. We work with adults who may be living with autism or people with developmental disabilities, mental health conditions, brain injury. So there's a variety of people who are living with cognitive change and diversity.
0: Wow, that is such important work. And I know, just from my family and personal experience, just the impact that dementia can have on families and how it's it really is. I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone or have someone in their family with one of these uh, conditions. So it's very important. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you use the Allen Cognitive Disability Model. Would you talk a little bit about what that is and how you use it in your practice?
1: Well, I'm going to take a step back because I want to say that I have over 30 years of clinical experience. My background is occupational therapy and rehabilitation science. And we're talking about, if we just talk about Alzheimer's and dementia, there is really good news that it can be prevented through lifestyle approaches. So I integrate lifestyle medicine with rehabilitation science. And the Allen Cognitive Disability Model is a practice theory and evidence-based approach that helps us to understand human behavior and functional cognition. So, what does that mean? <laughs> so we can a lot of times, if you look at cognitive testing or behavior, what do you think
0: of? Oh my goodness i I think of like a therapist in an office and a clipboard and just very straightforward answers and being careful of what I say so that I don't get put in some box that isn't really applicable.
1: That's right the, <laughs> and and there is there is value to that type of testing where, where we look at uh, these certain activities and a lot of them involve verbal responses. Tell me the date or say, spell this word backwards, or Mm. I'm going to tell you a series of names now. I want to see if you can remember it. And then we have a score and we give the person a severity rating. And then that's where they are at that moment in time. And then what happens from a clinical perspective, we say, well, my goodness, they have a moderate short-term memory difficulty. Hmm, They may have difficulty remembering their medication or hmm, that may affect driving safety or remembering to pay your bills. So there is value in that. The Allen Cognitive Disability Model is um, very different from traditional cognitive testing and interpretation. It, It has a scale of six levels that are ranked in a hierarchy. So six meaning no cognitive disability and one meaning severe or profound disability. And within each of those levels, there's very specific modes of performance. So it's very incremental and specific. So you may say, okay, someone's functioning in level four, but there might be 4.2, 4.4, 4.6, 4.8, 5.0. So all those different areas, like in 3.2, we know a person can probably write their name and... At 2.4, they're they able, the brain controls the body to walk. So it is a specific scale, but it's biological. So every person on the planet is on that scale. Wow. Okay. So you're on it, I'm on it, and every other person. So it puts a continuum of where where people fit. We, we can look at disability and diversity in a different lens. And wh- why we call it a functional cognitive scale, we look at how cognitive abilities affect um, our capacities to function. So for you and I, if we have the cognitive ability to drive a car safely, and now Let's say we go down to happy hour and we have a few drinks. What happens? Well,
0: first drink, you just get a little more relaxed, a little. Maybe you start to to say things you wouldn't normally say. Yeah, I, I think first yeah. is it's just everything kind of slows down. It's a depressant. Yeah.
1: So the alcohol impacts our cognitive ability or our brain function in order to safely drive a car. So that's functional. an example of functional cognition. However, once the alcohol wears off, in theory, then we would, our, we would improve in our functional capacity. So what makes this scale really nice is that it measures abilities simultaneously with deficits or difficulties. And then the the clinician can interpret that to say, well, maybe I did, there's a variety of standardized assessments that are not language-based. It's based on what the person is doing. And we'll say, well, this is where the person scored, was a good time of day, and it was in a quiet environment. But now we are looking and saying they're not matching what maybe their potential could be, why is that? And that could be the environment, it could be medication, it could be illness, stress, fatigue is a big one, are they sleeping well? So we take a a more holistic approach to helping the person and recognizing that their ability to function can vary in different environments and contexts.
0: Interesting. So is this something that is used multiple times? Like it it sounds like you can use this model, not just at one moment. And this is where you always are, but it sounds like it fluctuates depending on, you know, the sleep, the nutrition. Is this something that you use as a, as a working measure of where people are at? And maybe you tweak some of the things to see if they then change their position within the model. Yeah, that's
1: an excellent question and the answer is yes. We look at a pattern of performance. So, what is recommended when doing the assessment? There's a variety of tools that can be used to help begin to determine a person's level or ability. We recommend doing at least two of uh, two of those assessments and including skilled observation. However, I teach this model globally to thousands of people, and I always recommend that we assign that score and when we as a clinician feel ready and describe how that would be impacted. Is it a stable score? Is it going to change? What may influence it, so it's meant to be used dynamically. It's not meant to be. Uh, here's a score, and this is the prescription.
0: Yeah, that's really really cool. That is the standardized measure to see where there's progress, which is a, which is an exi- exciting perspective to have.
1: Yeah, and i I think it's really wonderful because it aligns up so much with our human diversity and capacity. So I think it gives a, a really compassionate way of helping people. But also what I love about teaching this to people who work with these individuals, it gives them a really in depth understanding the why behind they are, what their needs are, what their behavior is, and less labeling or saying, oh, that's a bizarre or awkward or quirky person. And we can begin to really start Mm -hmm. impacting them. Where before, I've seen just multiple, multiple times in break cases and breakthroughs, people didn't know what to do with the person. And here... With this model, they've begun to have a person-centered approach as well as really some of the strategies. Once you understand it, it's it's, it's simple. It's wow. not a big complex way to help people.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. And yeah, I like that it's nuanced. Would you share a little bit about the scope of your work Do you have a specialty? I know you work a lot with the Allen cognitive disability model and, but how, how do you apply this knowledge? Well, uh, there's a couple levels to that one. We
1: can work with an individual, but I also do a lot of work within organizational and system context. And I find that, um, one, I love doing that kind of work, (laughs) because it, when when you get the culture and the environment understanding the person then huge shifts happen across the board
0: wow okay
1: because i've i've trained uh, many 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 professionals individually and therapists and their feedback to me was well i understand but no one else in my Facility, or in my context understands. Now what? And yeah. so they would be able to make some impact with the person, but then it, it wouldn't carry over because uh, the rest of the team was not speaking the same language or seeing it through right. the same lens.
0: Wow. So you go in and you help the people that are hands on working with the individuals to understand where they're at and what they need. What does that look like? What do these? What do you teach in these trainings that allows caretakers or the different people at the organizations to understand?
1: Yes, and whether it is um, it could be a long term care facility, a home health organization, an employer hiring people, but really. Again, it it goes beyond education. All right. Well, when I started doing this organizational training and development, it was a a journey without someone ahead of me. And I was blessed to have Claudia Allen and the Allen Network um, supporting me behind the scenes. And I was working for a large organization that, that we were having great um, outcomes in these pilot buildings. And the, and across the board, we did studies after we piloted this program that uh, there was reduced falls across the board, reduced behavioral challenges across the board, um, less difficulty with feeding problems. But when I met with the CEO and the owner of this company, he said, I, I go into all these buildings, and he said, I just can't see it. I can't see it. Could not see it. Didn't know what we were talking about. And he, of course, he had not been in any of my training sessions. So I sat down and put a lot of deep thought into that. How do you see it? I mean, actually, years later, that inspired my research. But how do you see these invisible things and these changes? So I developed a tool and uh, with Claudia Allen's mentorship and, and a very simple tool where you could just walk into a building at any given time and grab an administrator's hand or anyone's hand and look at every person. And is that person positively engaged? Are they neutral? or are they negatively engaged? So neutral, maybe they could be, some people would say watching television, but I always say they have to be benefiting from that, not parked in front of the television sleeping. So, and a lot of times people who are maybe introverted personality, uh, they'll be hanging out doing not much of anything, but they're not complaining because they're they're more introverted where an extroverted person may be complaining or speaking out so that may be tracked as oh that's a negative whereas an introvert if you don't understand that you may say it's maybe neutral but it could be a negative so you can walk in at any given time and say we have 17 people on this living in this facility and let's see where we're at at 10 in the morning. And that's how we began to start tracking, having a more observing, qualitative way of tracking engagement. And I, the first time I used it, I was starting a new project and we did it in the morning. And then we met at the end of the day with the administrator and the team. And there was one lady who who sat in front of the fish tank all day, but that's what she did every day and never complained. And when we talked about that, the administrator was such a good person, but she felt, oh my goodness, she felt upset by that because it was something that they didn't recognize could be better, that they didn't recognize that maybe we could get this person engaged and then there was another um, woman who we went into her bedroom and she was more of a quiet, introverted personality, and she really needed to use the restroom and yet no one had picked up on that and so that was that was the start of that in that building, and we use it all the time now. But fast forwarding to that building, they developed this beautiful program based on a namaste care model. But they had people who were in the late and end stages of dementia went in and we put together a whole sensory day for them Mm. with music and nature sounds and being swaddled in warm blankets. And um, they did a beautiful program. And, but that was the starting point, that tool wow. and how we could work together to build meaningful lives for the caregivers
0: and the people living there. Wow. That's such a beautiful story. So when you go into a facility, what are you looking for? Cause it sounds, I know that there are so many, each, each place is unique. It depends on the individuals there and where they are on the model, but what are you looking for? If we use, you know, um, a long-term care facility where they have lots of dementia patients, just as an example, what would you be looking for and what are some of these tangible things? It sounds like communication between caregivers and those that run the facility is very important. What are some of the day-to-day things that you recommend the caregivers do or have tools to do when it comes to those patients. I'm just curious, what are you looking for and what are some of these key pieces that really make a difference?
1: Well, I, I start out, I, I'm a big um, supporter of assessments. So how are they learning? How are they understanding the person? How do the different departments work together. So, we have rehab department, nursing activities, how, and how do they learn to know the person living there? So, if they, I look at their tools, what they have, we do in the Allen model, we use what we call the biopsychosocial approach. So, um, the can do, will do, may do. So, the may do is all about the person. So, did your mom like to sew, or did your dad like to paint, or are they sensitive to certain textures or taste? And what's their preferences? Who is the person? And then, how are we finding out that information as a team? And how is everyone getting that information? So then, the can do again is looking at abilities, and. I've worked in in places where they didn't have a therapist who could do the high-end testing, but we could still observe and understand. Mm. So what what are they able to do and what can they do, what's important to them, and then how are we going to structure that in their day to make them, and that's where I integrate the lifestyle medicine. So we want to promote a healthy brain health. And that means movement and exercise and social connection and cognitive stimulation, rest, sleeping well, feeling important and useful. So we build a routine of activities within the organization. And it's simple. It doesn't have to be difficult. And I think that's the biggest fear that administrators have, like, this is going to be a, a, an expensive and complex process, but it's effective, it's evidence-based, and it can be very simple and have a profound impact. The other level is I work dynamically with the team, so they're part of the process of developing the program, which which improves, you know, ownership and loyalty, and and that's the whole team. That's not just certain people, it's it's people from all departments. And then we also consider families um, and caregivers as part of the team. So how can we bring them into that process and build and start building a community of care? And and every organization is individual, just like when we work with with patients or people, they're individuals. If we treated everyone the same, I believe we would not have the same results.
0: Wow. ah, oh, That's just so, it makes so much sense. And it's so great to hear that really what you're doing is helping these organizations remember that these are people with families and lives and not just another, another person, you know, it's, it's bringing in their whole life. What are some of the things that you've seen when you're able to, you know, the gentleman that loves to paint or the woman that likes to sew what have been some of your experiences or firsthand observations when you're actually able to incorporate some of that?
1: Well, I, I, I worked once in an organization. Um, I was contracted for a year to help them get a memory care program. They did not have a budget for activities at the time. And the staff, I, I and this was early on in doing this work, and I would bring them all together for training. And I think they were in disbelief that things could be different than how they were, and I had to become very resourceful with getting volunteers and the community. Uh, so, in the in the memory care section, we started with just a simple the morning activity where the individuals would do light seated stretching and movement. Then they would walk um, a short distance to have breakfast. Then after breakfast, they would walk a short distance to come back to the center room. And we worked with the pastoral care person where we transformed the services. He came every day for about a half hour. And we had music. What We had less language. We brought families in so they could have a parallel positive visit. Yeah. Then after that, we had in the morning when they were still awake and alert we did what we called an adapted work program and we had volunteers and it, it was just tailored activities to the person's abilities and interest then after lunch they had a rest and then we did more of a sensory social activity in the afternoon well eight months into that it was going beautiful and the administrator decided to hire an activities team and they came and they changed the schedule and what happened was these individuals were kind of hanging around. Where's my exercise program? Where's this? And I told, I told the administrator, if, if you go more than three weeks, all this hard work is gonna kind of go downhill because they became very accustomed to this routine. One of our favorite activities was we had the local um, funeral home um, delivering donated bouquets and we would disseminate take the um, bouquets apart and then they would build vases full of flowers and then go
0: yeah that's a great next,
1: idea yeah and push them we'd push the cart next door and they would deliver them to the people in the nursing home section so kate one day but i was frustrated because the staff just could not we were doing it and we were trying to get the staff to buy in and see it. So I had two students with me. We, we grabbed some music and I went into the dining department and there was a big bin of unfolded napkins, cloth napkins. And in the nursing home, in the dining room all day long, people just kind of hung out in there, did nothing. So I have, the students put the music on and we started this simple repetitive action of folding and stacking and folding and stacking. And all of a sudden, all these people in the dining room came to life and they were, you know, we, between the three of us, we were engaging all these people. So one, but the students were so excited because they were watching the people come to life I was excited because one by one, the staff was coming around the corner and they, they were bringing more more of these napkins and they were so excited. And I got in a little bit of trouble for kidnapping those napkins, but that was the turning point. The staff said, we are not giving those napkins back. They went to that for the program. And what I realized is sometimes you have to show people that it, that it can be done.
0: You mentioned when you were explaining earlier that part of brain health is having a purpose and feeling useful. Is that the key that made this particular example so meaningful is that they finally had an activity where they felt like they were helping?
1: They were doing something. Yes. And again, if we, like I I use a role assessment, so we look at what people did or want to do in their lives, and what's important to them, and then we tailor activities. But also, not just an isolated activity, it it becomes a routine and a pattern in which people live, and and what kind of encompasses who they are, and how that is important, if. If we're doing this in, let's say we're helping an organization who's hiring people, maybe an adult living with autism who's having their first work experience, what we do is, again, we offer a holistic assessment. So, what is the person's capacity? What maybe they're influenced by sensory differences? What do they want to do? So, we want to make sure that. Yes, they have success in the workplace, but we want them to meet their potential. Mm-hmm. So because they they have maybe differences or need accommodations, how do we help people understand so that they can grow to meet their potential and use their strengths and interests, not just saying, well, this is great, they're working, but maybe they have higher potential. So we want to make sure that we can help them meet that potential.
0: That's a very important distinction there. It's not just anything, but again, it's the person, what are their interests behind it? What do they enjoy doing? Full circle. It's all important.
1: Yes. And and there have been studies early, early on showing, you know, even with activity engagement, is it engagement with purpose or is it passive entertainment and showing how much that impacts cognition and, and our brains?
0: I know something for my grandma that is, she loves is music, especially when it comes to her church hymns and things that she knows the words to by heart. She may be forgetting a lot with dementia, but she will always remember words to her favorite hymns. Could you talk a little bit about grounding? I know that's one conversation that we've had previously and the importance of having things that help people feel grounded.
1: Well, I think especially with music, if we, we get into a little neuroscience here, I won't go too deep. But when we look at our brain, you know, we have billions of brain cells that form connections when we do things and early on in our lives like i am going to just use a simple example of tying your shoe when you're learning to tie your shoe for the first time it's hard Um, it requires a lot of effort a lot of concentration but what's happening in your brain you're forming a pattern a neural pathway is what we call it in your brain. And the more you do that activity, I'll say the wiring in the brain, that neural pathway gets tougher and stronger. So we say what fires together, wires together. And the more you do it, the stronger that wire. It gets hardwired, we say, in the brain. So now all of a sudden you're doing it over and over and over again. It's automatic. You don't think about it. So we call that procedural memory. And when you're learning something new, we call it working memory. So that's because it takes a lot more effort. So if you ever played a musical instrument and you're learning to play a song for the first time, you practice, 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 practice Then pretty soon. You don't even have to look at the notes. It becomes automatic and you play it. So music becomes hardwired in the brain. Our primary language becomes hardwired. So sometimes people living with dementia become, when they get more to that moderate stage, they may revert to their primary language. Uh, So the music is something that's so familiar and it's something that they can perceive and sense in, in their nervous system and it it provides them especially if someone who is in a unfamiliar environment and now they can't figure out how to acclimate to that environment the music can offer a sense of support and security Mm. so like an allen scale with those six levels she has a hierarchy of abilities but there's also what we call the hierarchy of sensory cues and we understand those sensory cues are the way that we can communicate with people and help them make sense of their world so an example someone in a in level three it's a tactile cue to help them understand and i always say uh, because I'm a talker and I like to explain things and, and most of us do do that out of social nuance and we have to take two steps back and instead of always telling them what to do, we have to show them, we have to guide them and that's what's going to make sense to that person. So we can get very in depth on that um, topic, right. but understanding that it makes a world of difference for people. So
0: it sounds like ways to help or ways to enhance the abilities that are there are built into the model. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Absolutely. That That's what the
1: model really is in its essence, in great detail. Wow. And it has a lot of what we call predictive validity, and ecological validity. And what does that mean? So predictive validity, because there are standardized tools, Can it, it looks at the underlying cognitive processes associated with doing something. And then we can make an inference through task analysis of what underlying cognitive processes are needed to do a different task. So, Interesting. so it could be even for driving a car, we can break down all the components needed to drive a car. Now, I could tell you how to drive a car and how to be safe, and I've never had an accident, and I know to stop at the red light, but doing that is a whole different brain process than, than telling a person what to do. So there's been a lot of studies associated with this model. But again, that's what we call ecological, ecological validity is the context in, work, in which a person performs that task. It's very different wow. than, so I can sit down and do a test in my office in acquired environment. And yes, I can see a capacity then, but what does that look like in its You know, how do I take that measure and say, are they safe to cook a meal or can they get dressed or why are they resisting care Mm -hmm. or why does someone have uh, this capacity, but they're doing a job that's way below that capacity. So it gives us a lot of information in terms of understanding what they can do, but then also how we can communicate with them and structure the physical environment and the social environment so the person can meet their potential. And it's We wow. call it like a sweet spot, the just right challenge. Wow. And how can they sustain that?
0: And you were directly with the creator of the Allen Cognitive Model. Is that correct? Yes. Claudia Allen
1: um, has been... A mentor for me for many years and she she is no longer with us anymore I'm sad to report but I've worked with her for many years and I did a research paper on her model interviewed her for hours yeah. when I did my doctorate work but she um, was an occupational therapist who emerged in her career in the 1960s and The field of occupational therapy was born out of psychiatry in the moral treatment era, and three psychiatrists came together at a time when there wasn't even a diagnosis for um, people living with mental illness and conditions, and it was so misunderstood. People were treated inhumanely. And these doctors came together and they said, well, there's a more humane way to work with people. And they formed the field of occupational therapy. Wow. And they said people could have purpose and meaning and use their hands. And and they felt that occupational therapy was the cure for these illnesses. Um, I think we are coming full circle to that because of brain science. But then what happened as we evolved and we had more diagnosis and then we had um, the era of uh, medication started to come into play and Freudian uh, psychology came into play. The field was starting to evolve And, and Claudia came on the scene during that time. And her first job was working with children with polio in a school. And then the school started taking children in with cognitive disabilities. And she said the staff had the same expectation for these children as they did with kids without cognitive disability. And they were having all types of um, challenges with behavior with the children. And she said the staff was stressed, quitting, and turned over, and she left. And she went into a teaching hospital where she saw all types of cognitive disabilities, but she had to teach these doctors what OT was doing. And I said to her, I said, what were we doing? (laughs) And she said, well, we were doing crafts because that's what we were born out of. But she said you know, they were doing ashtrays, making ashtrays, and she said if they painted the ashtray yellow, it was interpreted in the Freudian model, meaning they were happy, and if they painted it red, well, maybe they were angry. She said she couldn't explain it from what she was seeing. She was seeing differences in how people did things, Um, so she started reading the literature and followed Piaget's theory of sensory motor development, where the child has to integrate one sensory motor experience in order to go to the higher level experience. And that's where she formed her six levels based on that theory. And that was the beginning.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. But what, what a great experience to be able to learn from Claudia herself Of you know, and ask questions. That's why you are so good at what you do, because you had that opportunity to work directly with the creator of the model to clarify anything.
1: Yeah, and what and what has inspired me has been her one, her dedication and her bravery. I mean, being a theorist and having to explain something that was so different. Than other traditional models but also her compassion and that's what drives me is the compassion to help people a lot of times these disabilities are invisible and people experience secondary injustices we in my profession we call it an occupational injustice but where someone doesn't meet their potential or they're spending a lot of time sitting around doing nothing. And, and that's what really she offered a way of describing behavior that was so much more humane and objective than saying she, one of her, my favorite quotes was, well, they just misalign their buttons instead of describing it as bizarre behavior. Um, so she gave us language. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: really just, just a leader in humanity is Mm. the best way I could just describe her. Um, so I feel very honored and privileged to carry forth her work and passionate about it. And, not only because it's helping all, all these individuals, but it's also helping the people who serve these
0: individuals. Wow. Yeah. If the caretakers are happy and feeling successful in their role, that only creates more of the positive environment.
1: Yes. There's nothing more frustrating, in my opinion, than working with someone and not understanding why. You know, why is my child having difficulty at school? Or why is this person refusing to take a shower? Why are are they sitting alone on the chair all day or resisting change? And it becomes really frustrating whether you're a caregiver, a family member, a professional. But when you begin to understand why, which Ellen has given us, the tools and the language, there's like this huge weight that's lifted off Mm. the shoulders of, Mm. of people and society. And I think that that's been a tremendous gift, but not only in many cases, we understand why, but that's the first step into helping um, again, the person realize their potential. And I think Understanding the why, but also, again, I go back to that day in the dining room where the first step was just getting people doing something and they were happy. The staff changed. It, it changed. Their, their, they bought in. The staff were happy seeing that, and it changed the whole trajectory of that facility and program.
0: Right. And I'm sure the families noticed a difference. And I mean, that's just families.
1: Yeah. And we have a language to teach the families. Again, Mm. we have a language to teach them. And I, I believe in, in evidence based effective approaches made simple. Um, science and evidence and has come a long, long way. So we want to use those tools, use those assessments, carry that over, but then explain, explain it in ways that can be simple and have a profound impact.
0: What is your vision for the mental health space to come? What would you like to see in your arena in the future?
1: Well, I I think I have the vision that, that the individuals, you know, with mental health conditions and other cognitive impairments can live their highest expression and value of their self through the quality living in all communities. So I... I have a vision of having community based center that's integrated. It doesn't we don't have to have a employment it's just a center for all everyday place for people to come to have resources to maybe share music, a cafe and every community's different but integrating community spaces also with services and resources And and begin to disperse the information so that all communities, you know, can have that kind of place. It becomes just who we are as a community. That's my vision.
0: (laughs) When you first shared that with me, one of the first times that we got together and talked about all these things, I was really struck by that idea you had to create the community cafe where certain times it would be for certain ages or certain abilities and that knowing that they're not alone in those either they can find people like them and that connection that to me just seemed like such an amazing idea of it's a place of employment for some of these groups and it's also socializing and connection for certain generations I love you said you know having certain music or certain decade themes for certain individuals just being able to have specific outreach to specific groups so that they can find each other and create those connections and
1: yeah like an integrated yoga program so we know the science is coming out well, yoga is great for your brain. Uh, so people who want to pr- just go to yoga for brain health alone. we know yoga' is great for stress management. Yoga is good for sensory management and diets. and so there's many many integrated kind of programs um, that that can occur and every community again, just like every organization, has their own needs and will create their own program that's tailored to them, so could this center or community-based model. And yeah. again, anyone can come in and gather when, and at any given time, but also there'll be other structured kind of activities and outreach that will, like an adapted work program, Mm -hmm. Um, so that is on the horizon. That is what we're working on now.
0: I didn't, I mean, I personally have experienced the benefits of yoga, but I don't know that I knew I've never heard somebody actually spell out everything. And it come from recommendation from a brain specialist or brain health specialist pointing all those out. What are some other lifestyle things that you recommend that have an impact on the brain and can help promote the longevity of brain health?
1: Yeah, well, there's some the, some key ones. And sleep is a big factor for brain health. Our brains, a lot happens when we're sleeping. We, we clear out a lot of stress hormones and um, we solidify our memories. And a lot of research is coming out that you know, high quality, regular good sleep has, um, can contribute to prevention of dementia. So sleep, we want to sleep seven to eight hours a night. We want to get those three REM cycles going um, on average. So having high quality sleep, is always something when we look at programming, always what we consider for every person and every organizational program. Exercise, again, is really important. (laughs) And if you want to combine exercise and sleep, walking in nature, getting out, um, getting that direct sunlight into your brain um, can help sleep. But we want to do regular aerobic activity is really helpful. And then our diet, there are a lot of research coming out with whole food plant-based diet to help sugar, eliminating sugar, processed foods, um, things like that are really good. If if anyone has followed the blue zones, and that's yeah. um, where people are living well without disease to be a hundred, they they follow all this naturally in their lifestyle. They they eat well, um, mm-hmm. and they live in community, so social connection. They don't retire. They have a sense of purpose in life. In Japan, um, I guess where they live the longest, in one of the videos, they call it their ikigai, what their purpose is in life. So you wake up and you have a purpose and meaning in your life. Um, And and you live in community and you exercise, you have a healthy diet. And those are the, the key things for brain health. And whether you are in advancing dementia or you're young and you wanna have great brain capacity, all those basic things are equally important. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll create a program for an organization um, and sometimes we just, we support programs, but we try to, in that routine, we try to integrate these things into the routines. So we believe that our brain is always dynamic, always active, and, and we must treat treat it healthfully throughout.
0: Mm. Last question for you. We could keep going. I know we've had several long conversations that I just, I've, once we dive into the specifics, we only got to skim some of the surface today, but... I mean, there's just so agree. many. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's there could so be one, much.
1: one conversation in and of itself. Just absolutely. But, yes.
0: but final question for you today. What's the best piece of career advice you've received or would offer to others? I know this is quite different from the topic we've been talking about, but in your personal journey, what's the best piece of advice that you would share? Well,
1: I I, I'm going to say what I've told my children, and again, I think you have to find what you're passionate about, and you have to be happy in doing what you do. And I think, if if not not just search for an an extrinsic kind of thing, but find what makes you happy, and and do that, and and have a good work life balance in the process. Mm. Yeah. Your (laughs) guy. Oh, I love that. (laughs)
0: That's so good. Way to bring it full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've really, I always enjoy our conversations. You are such a fascinating woman and I feel very fortunate to have met you and to have learned so much from you. We've had conversations about my grandmother and things that are helpful. So, yeah. thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so and needed. Too, Kate. <laughs> and and uh, where can people connect with you and find you to learn more about your work?
1: Well, I have a website. It's um, VediciraServices dot com, and we have that. And we'll be having more podcasts and soon to come a YouTube channel as well.
0: Trish has a lot in the works. She is, she's got some big projects, but the website email is the best place for now to get in touch.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, so thank awesome. you once again. I really appreciate this opportunity to share
0: this wonderful information. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Big thank you to Dr. Patricia for taking the time to share with us today about all the work that she's doing in her space and each time that I speak with her and hear about the training that she's doing with professionals all around the world or you know, the consulting that she's doing. I'm just so impressed with the change she's making in the industry and I'm very thankful that she's doing the work and really helping make positive impacts on this space. I'm also really touched by the compassion and the humanity that she brings to this area through the cognitive disability model, but also just her mindset and her approach and the way that she makes it centered around the individuals and their families and where their abilities lie, not just where they're challenged or their disabilities are. I think the focusing on potential and the things that are there just really shows a difference on ways to bring more of that and ways to bring improvement. So make sure that you check out Dr. Patricia's work with Vita Cura and um, all the information that she has on her website, as well as check out her podcast, The Brain Connection Show That is about to get up and running. She'll be sharing a lot of helpful and interesting information over there. So jump on over, subscribe to that so that when she does get episodes rolling, they're ready to go. All right. I hope you are doing well and taking care of yourself. And I will catch you next time on another episode of Defining Roles.